This is 1988 Tops, where every card has a story to tell. Your hosts are David McKellis and Matt Kuzma. Let's play ball. Welcome back to 1988 Tops. David, what's our card for this week? Our card this week is Vladimir Guerrero. Card number T88-61, outfielder for the Montreal Expos. Just kidding, Matt. However, what in the world is Tops doing to us? They have added <laughs> in 100 1988 Tops lookalike cards to the 2023 Series 1 top set. I did open a couple packs. I did get this Vladimir Guerrero card, which it's beautiful. He doesn't have the powder blue Expos uniform. He's got the more dark blue, but it does use the very fitting for the Expos green and orange trim. I like a card that has a guy's basically full career of stats. It's got a good fun fact here. With 92.9% of the vote, Vladimir became the first Dominican position player to enter the Hall of Fame. Good fun fact, good picture on the card. One of my favorite all-time players, Vladimir Guerrero. So I thought we should address that. I don't think we're actually going to add on 100 more episodes at the end of this to cover (laughs) all of the players who are included in the 2023 set. But I know we've gotten a, a lot of notes from folks on the social medias telling us about these cards. And we know, we'll see how we feel in 2035 if we want to add a Frank Thomas episode or Vladimir Guerrero. I don't know how we can't do them, David. I think there's got to be a way to fit them in. I, I mean, I feel like at this point, it's like gambling with house money. When you say, oh, sure, we'll do another 100 episodes at the end of our run of 800 episodes. To use another you know, gambling metaphor, it, we're pot committed at this point. That's it. That's exactly it. We are pot committed. We've gone all in. We're drawing dead. Is that another one? <laughs> Is it? Are we splitting eights and aces? I'm not sure if any of this is a good idea or was ever a good idea from the start. We're happy to double down. So excellent card, that Vladimir Guerrero. But the real card is card number 378, Todd Froworth, pitcher from the Philadelphia Phillies. But first, we have follow-up from last week's episode about Carney Lansford. We got a note from Jeff over at the Two Strike Noise podcast. And first, he had a complaint. He's taken us to kangaroo court. We <laughs> referred to the athletics colors as green and yellow. So I think a, a fine must be assessed. I will pay the kangaroo fine. What, what is the fine for? The fine is $3.36 to cover Carney Lansford's three thirty-six batting average when he won the American League batting title and then also had that same average in 1989. Jeff also had some nice notes about Carney Lansford. He was recently at the A's fantasy camp, and he said that Carney was one of his favorite players growing up, a hard-nosed third baseman, and he was able to get Carney to sign his starting lineup figure, which I did look at, and that starting lineup looks nothing like Carney Lansford. He has a very up-and-down batting stance, no crouch whatsoever. He looks more like Wade Boggs. But Jeff also learned from talking with Terry Steinbach and Dave Stewart, who were coaches at the camp, that Carney Lansford was the captain, the unquestioned captain of the A's teams in the late 80s, and everything went through him as the team leader. He also mentioned that Carney was one of his favorites because of his role as the number two hitter in that lineup, batting behind Ricky Henderson. Oftentimes, Carney was in the unenviable position of taking pitches so that Ricky could run. 
And if you're starting out down 0-2, it makes your job much harder as the number two hitter, but you've got a man now on second base in scoring position, either for you to drive him in or for the next guy in the lineup to drive him in. And so Carney was an important part of those teams. We also got a note from Andrew, painted cap enthusiast and Chinese historian about Carney Lansford's time in Taiwan and Carney's general connection with Taiwan. We did mention that the 1969 Santa Clara team went to the Little League World Series and played Taiwan in the final of that Little League World Series. That was Taiwan's first trip to the World Series, and they and they won it all. Carney's son played for the Rakuten Monkeys in CPBL. Andrew sent a note about Carney's time as a coach in CPBL. Apparently, he was first invited for a spring training stint as a visiting hitting instructor, and then he presented his son with the game MVP award on March 31st, and they said, we'd love to see you come back if we make it to the playoffs. So when they got a playoff spot, Carney came back and was a coach and brought them some Carney Lansford magic, and they won the Taiwan series. So he not only did he win that ring with the A's, he also won one in Taiwan. And the final note about Carney Lansford is that he fits into A's history in a great run of third baseman that they had. First Sal Bando, who recently passed away earlier in 2023, and then Eric Chavez, then Matt Chapman, who was recently traded away. So there's just a, a great lineage of A's third baseman, and Carney fits right in with that and was able to bring a ring to Oakland as one of the leaders of that Oakland A's team. It was very clear from posting online and even from listens that Carney Lansford is a fan favorite. Is one of our biggest episodes yet. So Carney Lansford clearly meant a lot to a lot of people. He sure did. A top Carney, as we said. And if you have any feedback about our shows, you can email us at 1988topspodcast at gmail.com. But now let's go to this week's card and Todd Froworth. And why are we talking about Todd today? This is a relatively nondescript card. When I first saw Todd Froworth's name, I thought he was just a nondescript middle reliever. And there's so many more of those guys now in baseball. And back in the 80s, there were, I think, generally just fewer pitchers. But I didn't really know much about Todd Froworth. When I did look into him, I, I found that he had passed away relatively recently in 2017, and that he also had a, a pretty interesting career that ties in a couple of our favorite guys, Kent Tocolvi, Dan Quisenberry. And he was of that type. And so we have a sidearm reliever, a guy who played for the Phillies. These always seem to be good episodes. And Todd Froworth had a more interesting career than I initially thought. He has a Saber bio by Malcolm Allen. So thank you, Malcolm Allen, for that. With a name like Froworth, it's got to be good. So let's go to the front of 378. And we see Todd Froworth. He, just like Carney Lansford last week, Todd looks like he's about 14 years old. This has the look of a high school pitcher having his photo taken at the high school baseball field. You can see large power poles in the background. So it looks like kind of a community baseball center that's got like six or seven fields at it. Todd's wearing the pinstripe jersey, which looks really good. Love that pinstripes Phillies jersey. He's got a hat that looks like it's too big for his head. And his glove, which looks pretty good, it's, it's a light tan and it looks like it's got Fro written on it. 
there's a bad track record of people with magic <laughs> markers writing on things in baseball card <laughs> pictures. It does not say fro face, yes. for example. This presumably was a nickname or just to say, this is my glove. This is Fro's glove. How could someone have come up with that nickname of Fro, Fro for a guy named Froworth? This is also the first uniform that I remember that looks like a zip-up. Mm. I don't know if we've had any zip-ups. <laughs> Are they pajamas? Is this a onesie? Does he? Does Todd have a onesie? I would wear a Phillies there, onesie. If anyone out there has got Phillies onesies for kids or adults, please send us an order link. <laughs> Either in pinstripes or all maroon. Either way, a yes. Phillies onesie. That's the, the gift that keeps on giving. You mentioned that Todd looked like a high school pitcher here. He actually wasn't a high school pitcher. He was a second baseman in high school. And we will get to that in a little bit. But this is, I think, a pretty, it's an okay card. Good uniform, but he looks bored or skeptical. Let's go to the back of 378. We've got Todd Froworth, pitcher. Height 6'4", weight 195, right-handed thrower and batter. Drafted by the Phillies in the 13th round of 1984. Born September 28th, 1962 in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, with a home in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. I wish I was back in Milwaukee with schnitzels and pretzels and beer. Matt, do you remember the scene from Wayne's World about Milwaukee? I'm a regular visitor here, but Milwaukee has certainly had its share of visitors. The French missionaries and explorers were coming here as early as the late 1600s to trade with the Native Americans. In fact, isn't Milwaukee an Indian name? Yes, Pete, it is. Actually, it's pronounced Miliwake, which is Algonquin for the good land. This is one of the scenes that I remember the most from Wayne's World. Alice Cooper talking about the history and the many visitors to Milwaukee. But I had always heard that this was not factual that the name Milwaukee did not mean the good land or that it wasn't named after the Algonquin word. But according to the Milwaukee Library, Alice Cooper is sort of right, or whoever wrote Wayne's World is sort of right. I assume Alice Cooper was got script writing credits <laughs> on this. It turns out Alice isn't entirely accurate. Milwaukee does indeed translate to good land, but from terms originating in the Ojibwa, Potawatomi, and Menominee languages. In those languages, the name is similar sounding, but defined slightly different. And there's a debate about which name was used first. To compare the Potawatomi, Minwaking, or Ojibwa, Ominawaking, or gathering place by the water. And so as recently as the 19th century, there was also even a dispute about the spelling of the name using a double E at the end versus IE. So the Algonquin term may not be the reason why it's called Milwaukee, even though it does mean the good land. So either the good land or gathering place by the water. Much closer than I thought. I actually just assumed that Alice Cooper was just flat out wrong on this. But who am I to argue with doctor of Algonquin history, Alice Cooper? Milwaukee is the largest city in Wisconsin. The city has a bad history of redlining, which led to African-Americans being segregated in the city. And it still remains a very segregated city, but does have a black population of 38%. And historically, the city has had a large German population, which remains at close to 20%. And that explains the long beer history in Milwaukee, once was home to four of the world's largest breweries. Schlitz, Blatz, Miller, and Pabst. And Todd's name, not Froworth, but Todd, 
It does make me think of George Carlin talking about guys named Todd. He doesn't love the name, but Todd is a name from the Northern Middle English coming from T-O-D-D-E, Todd, meaning fox. Froworth is German, comes from Fruworth, a nickname for an innkeeper who was an early riser as Fru, F-R-U with an umlaut H is the word for early in German. The Chris Bermanism of this name was Todd, which hand does he Froworth? which is not <laughs> one of Chris's best. Todd was the youngest of six kids of Russell and Patricia. Russell had been a semi-professional basketball player for the Milwaukee Allen Bradley team in the National Industrial Basketball League. The Allen Bradley company was founded in 1903. They made factory automation equipment. They still exist, but are now owned by Rockwell Automation. The name Allen Bradley is important in Milwaukee and in sports as the Bradley Center where the Bucks played from 1988 to 2018, was named for the family who founded that company. Industrial Basketball League was around from 1947 to 1963, included teams like the Peoria Caterpillars, the Akron Goodyear Wingfoots, the Wichita Vickers, and the Los Angeles Fibber McGee and Mollies. That one might be a Wikipedia lie. I did not look that up, but um, <laughs> that was in Wikipedia. I'm going with it. Guys who worked at the factories made about the same amount as players in the NBA at this time, but it was considered an amateur league. So they were paid to work in the factory and then just happened to play basketball. And there were a lot of really good players in this league who went on to NBA or ABA careers, including some Hall of Famers like Larry Brown, Gus Johnson, Clyde Lovelett. Russell was a Korean War vet and went on to be a teacher and his sons played baseball. Todd played baseball, but was rarely a pitcher. He preferred second base, and at second, he always threw sidearm. It just felt right to him. He said if he threw overhand, it sailed over the first baseman's head, so the sidearm kept his throws lower, and he emulated Manny Trio, who was a sidearm-throwing second baseman. But he wasn't very good for Mesmer High School. He hit only 200, and he didn't really have a career in baseball ahead of him. But in 1979... His brothers, they're watching TV in the World Series. They see our hero, Kent Tocolvi, and they say, he throws like you do. Why don't you try pitching? So Todd takes this recommendation. They go out in the backyard. They're messing around. Nobody can hit his pitches. He doesn't really have any velocity or movement at this point, but everyone's just confused by the sidearm angle that it's coming in at. Nobody knows how to coach him to be a better pitcher at the high school level, so he keeps playing second base, isn't very good in his senior season, and it looks like his baseball career is over. Yeah, he wasn't recruited to play college baseball, but since he's six foot four, he could play basketball, and he enrolled at Waukesha Technical Institute, a junior college, to play basketball. He also pitched in the Wisconsin Summer Langsdorf League. He pitched well and worked on his sidearm there, and then transferred to Northwest Missouri State University. The school has a very good Division II football program, winning six Division II titles, and has sent a bunch of players to the NFL. And there are other Bearcat baseball pros like Gary Gaetti and Bruce Barigny. Northwest Missouri State isn't too far from Kansas City, so Todd's coach took him to Kansas City to watch 1988 Topps podcast hero Dan Quisenberry pitch. Quiz was even more underhanded than to Colby. And scouts started to watch Todd pitch in college and thought maybe he had promise, but he did need some help. He said, there was nobody at all for me when I was in college. Anything the regular pitching coach told me, I just had to try that. 
I think that was why I had a lot of control problems. The Phillies saw him throw again with his summer league team, the Waukesha Nationals, and they decided to take a shot. That takes us to this way to the clubhouse that Todd was signed as a 13th round draft selection with the Phillies June 10th, 1984 by scout Don Williams. Don Williams played 13 seasons in the minors, making it his highest triple A in the Dodgers system. He was the California League MVP with Reno hitting 364 in 1961. He later coached in the Padres system and then scouted all over the place for Atlanta, Philadelphia, and the Rays. After he's drafted, we start a run on the back of Todd's card that looks like pretty good performances all throughout the minors and even into the majors. Starting at Bend, Oregon, he threw in 49 innings, struck out 60, gave up only 26 hits, a 1.63 ERA, leading the league with 11 saves. Moves up to the Peninsula Pilots, 82 innings, 74 strikeouts, 2.2 ERA, again leading the league with 18 saves. He allowed more base runners, but was still very good. 1986, he runs into another one of our heroes, as previously mentioned, Kent Tecolvi. And Teak was with the Phillies at this point. So Todd actually got to work with him in spring training. He splits time in 1986 between A and AA, leading both of those teams in saves. His walk rate the previous two seasons was over five per nine innings. In 1986, it had been cut in half, 2.7 walks per nine in 94 combined innings. He also got married in September of 1986 to Jacqueline Vincent. They would have two children, a son, Tyler, and a daughter, Samantha. 1987, he starts at AA, and in 36 games, he had 18 saves and held opposing batters to a 183 average. He got promoted to AAA, and in 32 innings, he gave up just nine earned runs. Between the two leagues, he had a whip right around one and a 2.09 ERA. And in August, the Phillies released veteran Tom Hume to make room for Todd and gave him his call-up. I reached out to The Relief Room on Twitter, and that's at The Relief Room. And Matt, we have somehow not talked about The Relief Room on this podcast yet. This is a Twitter account and really a bathroom dedicated to Phillies relief pitchers. <laughs> a shrine. A shrine with a porcelain throne. When you need some relief, you go to The Relief Room. This is one of the most over-the-top things I have ever seen in doing this podcast in the most amazing way. This guy, Matt. Edwards uh, was featured in the New York Times in an article by Tyler Kepner, and there's pictures of this bathroom. The walls are just covered in pictures of Phillies relief pitchers. Of course, we've got some Kent Tocolvies, we've got Tug McGraws, Steve Bedrosians, but also guys like Todd Froworth, Dan Schatzetter, anybody you can imagine who has ever pitched in relief for the Philadelphia Phillies is, is featured in this. And I did reach out to the relief room and said, do you got any Todd Froworth specifics you want to share? And the relief room said that they didn't have any firsthand stories, but they loved the story of his Major League Baseball debut. And that was truly a remarkable first game. August 10th, Phillies are playing the Cubs. 1987 Cubs have Andre Dawson on this team. Not a great team, but they got some, some big hitters. Up 4-2, to two, the Phillies starter, Kevin Gross, gets ejected from the game when a piece of sandpaper is discovered in his glove. So Todd gets called in with men on first and second. First batter is the Hawk. On his way to an MVP, and he strikes out Andre Dawson. He gets the next batter to ground out. He held the Cubs scoreless in the sixth, and then hands it off to Kent Tocolvi, his hero, his mentor. 
Teak gets the hold, Bedrock Bedrosian gets the save, and Todd gets a win in his first start. He said, it all happened so fast, I didn't have time to really think about what was going on. I just had to get in there and get loose while in front of the most people I've ever played in front of. I didn't have time to think it was Dawson. I just wanted to throw strikes, and I threw him sinkers and sliders. And then I end up with a win in my first game, which right now makes me more excited than I've ever been in my life. On this card, he looks more excited than I've ever been <laughs> in my life. He also had that mentor in Teak. He said, when I have trouble, the guy I'm trying to copy is right here to help me out. So Tocolvi helped him out, showing him where to grip the ball, to make his breaking ball break in the right direction. After four games, he had 4.1 scoreless innings. He gets sent back down to Maine, is called back up in September, pitches six more games, 6.2 innings, strikes out six, gives up zero runs. So on the season, we have a 0.00 ERA, 10 games, 11 innings, nine strikeouts. And that's one of only 18 seasons in baseball history where a pitcher appeared in at least 10 games and gave up zero runs. His first 11 innings, he's scoreless. The top of that list with the most innings pitched was last season, J.P. Fireisen pitched 24.1 scoreless innings in 22 games. Not many guys have had a season like this, let alone to start their career. Really a great start. It's also just so great on the baseball card to see this, to see a 0.00 and to see there being, you know, more than just like two innings or something like that. So to have 10 games and a zero earned runs is just very pleasing on the eye. In the offseason, he went to Puerto Rico and went five and one with five saves and a 0.59 ERA and 25 appearances. So a great winter as well. That 87 line is the last line on on this card. He starts 1988 on the Phillies roster. But as good as that debut was in 1987, his follow-up in 1988 was the opposite. In his first six games, he gave up five runs in five innings. Even when he wasn't conceding runs, he allowed base runners. And he got sent back down to AAA. He came back up in June to cover for an injured Teak. But he wasn't much better. He finished the season with an ERA over eight in the 12 games that he played, a whip of 2.2. So not a good sophomore season. 1989, he has a really good picture on his scorecard that shows his form. It was a very cool action shot. A lot more action than the 1988 Tops card. And you get that awesome powder blue Phillies uniform. He looks big. He was a 6'4 guy. Get some actual like muscle definition in this card. This is his 1989 rookie card. So even though he already had two seasons under his belt, he still had rookie status because he didn't pitch all that much. He started at AAA, Scranton, Wilkes-Barre. He bounced between there and Philly a couple times. He had an ERA over six in his early season stint in Philadelphia before getting a late June call up and he stuck around till the end of the season. From June 29th through the end of the season, he had an ERA under three appearing in 45 games. So that brought his season ERA down to 3.59, a 99 ERA plus. So solid right around league average, but this was a 95 loss Phillies team. He did get a chance to meet Dan Quisenberry that season, later would meet another sidearmer, Jeff Innes, and he said that these guys felt like we were friends before we ever met. <laughs> it's a unique fraternity of sidearm pitchers. In 1990, Todd was 27. He starts with the big league club, coming off a decent year, but it all went wrong early in the season. He pitched in only five games and finished one full inning. He walked six, gave up three hits and two runs and was sent to AAA. 
Todd said every pitching coach told him something different. He threw from every arm angle imaginable, from sidearm to underhand. And after the season, he was granted free agency. He really needed a change. And he signed with the Orioles, who had seen him pitch at Scranton. And specifically, Orioles AAA pitching coach Dick Bosman thought, we can fix this guy. Well, let's see. Did they fix him? Bosman saw that Froworth had gotten destroyed by lefties. They hit 351 off of Todd. And he said that the rotation of Todd's pitches was bringing the ball back over the plate against lefties. And Dick Bosman said, we had a submariner in our organization who couldn't get left-handers out. He didn't want to drop down any further, and left-handed hitters continued to kill him. He's driving a cab now. Todd didn't feel like driving a cab, which is an honorable profession. So he decided to switch, take that Dick Bosman advice, and go full-time submariner, submariner, either one. And he starts at Rochester. He didn't immediately dominate, but he learned about how his pitches could move with that new release point. Throwing sidearm, his pitches moved away from the batter, but right into the line of the barrel of the bat. And so switching to underhand, his release point changed, and the ball now dropped. And so it made it much more difficult to hit, and he was able to keep the ball down and get a lot of ground ball outs, as well as just fooling hitters. And so after 20 games, he had eight saves, a 3.65 ERA, which wasn't fantastic, but it earned a call up on the recommendation of Bosman. Yeah, and Bosman was proven right. Todd was fantastic. He didn't give up a run in his first seven appearances. He had five holds and only allowed one base runner on a dropped third strike. He was Greg Olson's setup man. He made 51 appearances, 96 innings pitched with a .965 whip. So cutting that whip in half from his previous year, held opponents to a 190 average. Righties 169, lefties hit only 223. So this is fantastic improvement. He finished the year with a 7-3 record with three saves and a 1.87 ERA, which was a 214 ERA plus, a 3.3 war for a relief pitcher. That was the third highest among pitchers with no starts. He finished second to league MVP Cal Ripken Jr. in team MVP voting. So his teammates, local press, all thought he had a great season. Johnny Oates said, I don't think anyone could have looked you in the eye last spring and said he is going to pitch this well. Todd said the submarine style, not only did it change the location of his pitches and the direction of his pitches, but it also added miles per hour to his fastball and made his breaking pitches rise. So he had just strange movement that confused hitters. And maybe Dick Bosman was the only person who thought that he could pitch that well, and he earned himself a promotion to pitching coach with the big league club. In 1992, Todd wasn't quite as dominant, but he still held batters to a pretty low average, 247, right around the same for both lefties and righties. On the season, he again ate up a ton of innings, 100-plus innings for a reliever, led all AL relievers with 106 innings in 65 games. A 2.46 ERA, that's a 163 ERA plus. He was eighth in win probability added in the American League, which is interesting for a relief pitcher. He had a, a very good run of 24 innings without an earned run between June 20th and July 12th. And when I searched for Todd Froworth on YouTube, looking for any video of him pitching, I found one that said, Todd Froworth ejected. And this is a game on August 19th, and it was posted by Samantha Froworth. And the note on it was, we love you, Dad, and miss you. Still our favorite video ever. So this video shows Todd against Edgar Martinez. 
and Todd had been brought in with the bases loaded against a future Hall of Famer. From the looks of some of these calls, umpire Larry Barnett made some close calls, and they did not go in Todd's favor. So he throws a pitch, and Edgar turns on it and hits a grand slam, the only grand slam that Todd gave up in his career. And Todd was not happy. <laughs> it was not, not at all. <laughs> the mild-mannered Todd Froworth threw everything onto the field. He left it all out there. Yeah, his hat, <laughs> his glove. <laughs> and he sidearmed everything, too. That was, was so great. That's just the way he knows how to throw. He threw his hat, his glove, the ball, all back of the field. He gets tossed out of the game. It wasn't a great call, and you could see... He wasn't arguing balls and strikes before he gave up the home run, but as soon as the ball went over the fence, he was just livid with the umpire. And they were really close calls. So I I wonder if the the sidearm motion and the flight of the ball had to be confusing for an umpire, and it's hard to tell where the ball starts and finishes and where it comes over the plate. So I wonder if when our robot umpire overlords take over, if they will lead to more sidearm pitchers because it will be able to better read where the ball comes over the plate. I would hope so. I would hope more sidearm, more submarine, more EFIS pitches maybe, so that you can get the full three-dimensional strike zone benefit. Anything that brings us more EFIS pitches is a plus. (laughs) So this was maybe not Todd's finest moment, was unable to keep his composure in that game. But after that game, he went 10 straight games, 17 innings, scoreless. He had a great year. He said he never got shoulder soreness, and he had pitched a lot of innings, 200 innings over two seasons. He signs a one-year deal in the offseason, which tripled his salary from 265000 to 900000 plus incentives. But after two solid seasons, a lot of innings, He pitches a lot again, 70 games, 96 innings, but he didn't really have the same results. Lefty's batting average ticked up again from 246 to 267, and his whip was up again from below one a couple years before to 1.4, also giving up more fly balls than before. Fewer strikeouts, more home runs. That's not a good recipe. His ERA plus in 1993 was 117, so it's still above average but not as good as prior years. In the offseason, the Orioles offered him $720,000, which was the maximum allowable pay cut under the collective bargaining agreement, and Todd declined. He said, I've had a great three years here, but it's a business decision. So he signed a minor league deal with Baltimore prior to 1994, but rather than go to AAA after struggling in spring training, he chose to be released and signed with the Red Sox, starting in Pawtucket, earning a call-up in May. He got called up. He gets a save against the Mariners, strikes out Ken Griffey Jr. It's a pretty good start, but then by June, his ERA was over 10. He sent back down. He got called back up, but when the strike ended the season, his ERA was 10.8 in 22 games that year. In 1995, he signed with the Pirates, But he didn't make the team out of spring training. And he said that was hard to do. The Pirates only had about two good players. He signed with Cleveland and was good at AAA. Signs with the Angels, was good at AAA. Gets called up. Shelled in the bigs. Seven earned runs in five innings. And gets released. Finally, signs with the Orioles. But after nine games at AAA, decided to retire. So closing the book on Todd Froworth. Nine seasons in the major leagues. 
284 games played and 417 innings pitched. A record of 20 wins and 19 losses with an ERA of 3.6. He had 11 saves and an ERA plus of 115. How about in retirement? Todd went back to Wisconsin. He became a baseball coach at West Waukesha High School, then later coached for the Beloit Snappers at A-level for the Brewers, also coached at UW-Milwaukee. He did some scouting for the Orioles. And in the baseball offseason, he coached middle school basketball, then coached girls high school basketball, leading Whitefish Bay High to the state finals in 2006. Whitefish Bay athletic director John Gustafson said he was just a very good man. He didn't have to coach high school kids. He could have been a Bob Euchre in the broadcast booth. He was just that funny. He also coached Mukwanago High School girls basketball to the state finals in 2013. He then coached boys basketball at Marquette High School and girls at Elkhorn High School. And in 2014, Buck Showalter asked him to join the Orioles at spring training. They had a reliever, Darren O'Day, who was a sidearm pitcher. And in the same way that Teak helped out Todd Froworth, he was a mentor to Darren O'Day. O'Day went on to have an ERA plus over 200 that season, 2014, made the all-star team in 2015. And that was partially thanks to Todd Froworth's assistance and skill as a coach and his willingness to talk with other sidearm submarine pitchers. In 2016, Todd's son, Tyler, was picked by the Phillies in the 31st round, and Tyler was also a sidearm-throwing righty. He played a couple seasons in the minors. In the year before Tyler was drafted, Todd was diagnosed with stomach cancer, and he passed away on March 26, 2017, after a year-long battle with that cancer. He was 54 years old and is survived by his wife of 30 years, Jackie, and his son Tyler and daughter Samantha. So sad to hear of his passing from cancer, but here's a pitcher that looked like a teenager on this card. It seems like had a real flash of a career. What do we think about him now that we've looked at him a little more? Todd Froworth threw almost 300 innings in relief from 1991 to 93, pretty much unheard of in today's baseball. After his 1992 season, when he threw 100 innings, he wasn't ever as effective. Between that level of use and the need to make adjustments in your pitching style, there can be a short window of opportunity for sidearm pitchers. Batters learn what to expect, and either Todd got overused or batters just got used to his stuff and knew which way it was going to go. But for those two seasons, 91 and 92, he was the most valuable reliever in baseball by wins above replacement. 5.9 wins above replacement was better than Dennis Eckersley, who won a Cy Young Award better than Dwayne Ward, who pitched in 40 more games than Todd did. In that two-year stretch, his 183 ERA plus was third among pitchers with at least 75 games. He was really great, first for the not-very-good 1991 Orioles, and then for the 92 team that was pretty competitive. He also gave us some memorable sidearm baseball cards, and there aren't very many sidearm guys, so for that He's memorable when you see one of these cards and you see an arm angle that's so low it's almost touching the ground. There's even fewer sidearm pitchers now. A 1992 Baltimore Sun article about Todd said, There aren't very many submarine pitchers, and there are even fewer successful ones. Because there aren't very many successful ones, there aren't very many coaches in the majors or minors who are familiar with them. What results is a kind of institutionalized prejudice against submariners. So Todd tried to pass along what he knew in the same way that Kent Tocolvi and Dan Quisenberry and other submariners did, first to his son, Tyler, 
And then when his old team called him up, he passed that along to Darren O'Day. And so you have Todd Froworth trying to continue that lineage of sidearm submarine pitchers. And if you search for him on Twitter, Phillies and O's fans remember him when talking about new sidearm pitchers coming to pitch for their team. And when he passed away, Buck Showalter said, I remember the only thing that he had to get back for was he was coaching a girls basketball team back home that year. And so here you have a guy who's called in by the big league club to help as a pitching coach. And he knows that he has an obligation to some kids back home that he needs to help because he's got to take them to the state title. And Todd was a really good guy. Not only did he pass on his baseball knowledge, but he also wanted to give back to his community where he grew up coaching high school basketball. And he was taken far too soon. And it's too bad that he didn't have many more years of teaching high school layup drills and submariner skills. Absolutely taken too soon, but a great story about him. And we glad to see that video of him posted by his daughter in his element, yelling at the ump. Very good story, David. So thank you for that. And thank you to you at home. If you've ever wanted to play Stairway to Heaven at the guitar store, but been denied, you'd play it for us on Twitter. We're at Tops1988. Thanks a lot. We'll see you next week.